0: Well, I'm not sure what happened. I have a really bad habit of when I'm preaching, I also happen to be leading music. <laughs> so I asked Ed if he could uh, do the Lord's uh, or the uh, the pastoral prayer this morning, and uh, I'm grateful for that. Um, so uh, next week, it won't be the same. It's not going to all be John in front of you. But this week, this is what this is what you have. So um, I want to uh, reflect a bit today on the idea of love, the term love, the concept of love. Uh, I'm aware that we have a celebration coming up in two days, and and generally speaking, traditionally at least in the Baptist churches that that I've been in and and know of, uh, this particular Sunday is uh, meant to have a semi-patriotic theme, and and a love, right, for one's country. That's what patriotism essentially is. Um, Yet... The last few years, it's felt a little weird when we get to this point. I don't know about you, but for me, um, we just had a whole month, especially in New York, it was less so in Virginia, but up here I feel it even more potently, uh, called Pride Month. At least now the government's even calling it that, sanctioning it. My phone sends me a notification that it's Pride Month. And that's supposed to be about love. In fact, um, I was at the grocery store uh, at the beginning of June, and notice their uh, shopping bags say, love is love, right? Love is love. And and so this is also supposed to be a celebration of love. And I, I just, uh, it just, it troubles me that love is so polluted, so misunderstood, so corrupted. And especially for young people growing up, and this is all they know, they're going to get A number of different versions of what love is, and so it's with that in mind uh, that I prepared today's message. Um, It's uh, a a bit theological, a bit philosophical, a bit uh, of cultural apologetics is included in this. Um, But I want to examine, uh, get underneath the hood of this concept of love because we use the word so much. Not just even in church, we we use it out there. You hear it on the work, uh, in the workplace. You hear it, in the news. So what is it? What are we dealing with? What does God expect of us as his followers? Well, John 15:12 through 13 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. In our day, it is common to think of love in terms of subjective personal preference. Love can be found in both the devoted elderly couple and the casual rendezvous. It can be displayed by a Veterans Day or a Pride Month celebration. It can refer just as much to a family member as it can to a stranger on social media. Love does not need the boundaries set by mutual obligation, proximity, or trust. In fact, rejecting these boundaries is the only absolute condition That defines it now. The slogan, love is love, captures this. It communicates that various experiences produce different kinds of love that are all equally legitimate. To limit what we think of as loving is to be unloving. We must accept people for who they are, which means affirming their professed identities and the choices that allegedly flow from them. Relegating the label to certain displays and failing to extend it to others is condemned as hate and reserved for ignorant bigots who stubbornly cling to prejudices which favor themselves, their people, and their God. This means natural affections and religious sentiments that promote virtue and reject vice are now at odds with the modern definition. They are too discriminatory and not inclusive enough. Many professing Christians accept this paradigm. Of course, you hear this all over the place. We heard this in 2020 quite a bit uh, during the whole COVID uh, ordeal. Uh, Inclusion um, and and the social justice stuff. Uh, Inclusion, um, acceptance, these kinds of things are almost parallel. They're the same, they're adjectives to love. In mainline churches, it is common to assume that uncritical acceptance matches the Bible's conception of love. Uh, these would be the churches that you go past, usually older buildings that will have a rainbow flag. And in in New Paltz, there's one that has a Ukrainian flag. There's not even an American flag. But um, these are the churches that I'm talking about. They capitulated about a century ago to liberalism, and now they're just adopting what the world says love is. They dismiss passages that limit worship to God and sexuality to marriage in light of this. Evangelical leaders, that's what we are, often take a more complicated approach. By condemning those with worse reputations, they think they can gain acceptance and qualify as loving. Yet we are discovering now that while this may create distance between them and smaller outfits, branded hate groups, its effects are temporary. Government bureaucrats and industry tycoons increasingly force Christians and traditional conservatives to celebrate pluralism and sexual anarchy. What should we do in a scenario where our own chief virtue is weaponized against us? Jesus set an example for us during his battle with the Pharisees, who often subverted God's intended meaning. They justified fleshly desires by prioritizing perverted interpretations of certain passages while ignoring other more relevant teachings. For example, in Mark chapter 7 verses 9 through 13, uh, the writer recounts the way that the Pharisees justified failing to provide for their own parents by placing their funds in a ministry-directed safe harbor called Corbin, uh, where it would be inevitably spent on themselves. Likewise, Matthew, or mark rather ten chapters uh, verses two through twelve, describes the way they use the Mosaic law to vindicate freely divorcing their own wives. In both cases, Jesus confronts them for disobeying God's clear design concerning honoring parents and marital fidelity. Ultimately, they twisted the definition of love by eroding the natural obligations that direct us in order to pursue sin. We face a similar yet more revolutionary threat today. It intends to subvert the created order and mold us into lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. As Jesus did with the Pharisees, we should reject the conforming influence of the present world system and embrace God's good ordering. This means first recognizing the way we are manipulated into accepting a false, hollowed-out definition of love. If you're taking notes on this, um, there's really three main categories, love destroyed, love restored, and the bounds of love. We're going to talk right now about love destroyed or love corrupted. The term love benefits from a reputation gained through generations of positive displays. Families nurtured, soldiers died, Jesus sacrificed. Voluntarily embracing actions and fulfilling duties for the benefit of those one shares fellowship with constituted the broad conception of it. Even many pagan and secular writers recognize this, from the Roman historian Livy, who said true patriotism was founded upon respect for family and love of the soil, to the fictional Mentoria, who in colonial times instructed soon-to-be women to love their parents. With poems like this, with love and duty, both this I indict, and these lines, dear parents, I impart, the tender feelings of a grateful heart. Premodern people generally understood that for most human relationships, nature-guided love and love-motivated duty. Even if someone did not feel like fulfilling their duty, they should still fulfill it on the basis of a higher love for God and others. Eventually, affection for the object of their duty would follow. For example, a book on courtship from the 17th century told young women, in the case of royal arranged marriages, to sacrifice their love where duty ordains it. In this case, benefiting one's family initially became the basis for selecting a spouse, while mutual love for that spouse came later through time and experience. This formulation offends modern sensibilities, though. And I don't know if you notice, if you ever see a medieval film or a period film, uh, half the time, uh, there's really only two themes they go with. Uh, half the time, the theme is, I want to marry for love. Right? Not out of obligation, but for love. Right? And then, uh, of course, the other one is uh, the people should decide, the king shouldn't. Those are, it's just in my estimation, I like medieval films and, and so forth. And, and those are the themes I see running through it. Because uh, there's a, a reaction against the archaic past and those obligations. And, and seeing that as negative and part of the dark ages. And something to distance ourselves from in, uh, in a time when love is, is supposed to be free and open and exercised at our own discretion. Uh, The reason that this offends modern sensibilities is because in addition to the traditional view, we also inherit a pre-romantic outlook that sees love and duty as almost in opposition. Philosopher Immanuel Kant said, Inclinations are always burdensome to a rational being, meaning that feelings conflicted with actions based in reason. And he, he wrote during the late 1700s, just to give this some context. This devalued passions as if they were not important. Romantic era philosophers who came next tried to recover the importance of passion by grounding it in a cosmic spirituality that underlay the apparent materialism of nature. Unfortunately, instead, they introduced a rationale that justified love on emotional grounds separate from guiding principle. So you have the, the, the pre-romantics... You have Kant essentially saying, we shouldn't go with our instincts or those, the, the passions that we feel. You should be careful of that. Don't, don't consider that. They're nuisances. They're annoying. Instead, we should just go with what our mind tells us, what reason tells us we ought to do. And the romantics come in and say, hey, hold on. Feelings mean something. We're, we're feeling beings. We, we see things and we, we, we sense uh, beauty or sublimity. And so th- there's this conflict. How, how is it rectified? What came next effectively synthesized rational and emotional approaches to love. In The Origin of Species, Darwin, Charles Darwin, claimed maternal love or maternal hatred is all the same to the inexorable principle of natural selection. This evolutionary teaching reduced people to animals. Love was simply an instinct derived from blind, amoral biology. This did more than explain why people loved. It also destroyed the ability to set limits on legitimate instincts. Over time, hormonal impulses became associated with love as duties that conflicted with them became delegitimized as relics from the dark ages. For the next century, philosophers and psychologists wrestled with questions of love and duty, but never returned to a transcendent view that placed them in their proper places. It is easy to see how we arrived at the current situation where divine explanations for love are non-binding, and we are daily deceived to think of it more in selfish than sacrificial ways. A constant drumbeat in our ears encourages us not only to reject duty and let our passions run wild, but to think of it as love. Enlightened activists, supposedly free from bias and welcoming to all, simply want to love even if it means burning down a building. Spouses are motivated by self-love to end marriages they feel do not reflect their authentic self. Friends destroy relationships when they cut someone out of their lives for failing to affirm a lifestyle choice. I think most of us have had experience with, hopefully not the building burning down, but at least the other two things. In each case, what was once considered unloving is now executed in the name of love. This approach to love is self-refuting because it seeks to limit those who believe in limits. It calls evil good and good evil, and accomplishes the mission of Satan to steal, kill, and destroy. This means the term is now essentially dead, and if it is to mean anything again, we must recover its good name and adorn it with the truth. Love restored, second second category here. The greatest commandment in the Bible is to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. From this flows our love for those made in his image. This means the entirety of the Christian life is characterized by love. It should motivate our spiritual service and our natural obligations. Jesus instructed us to love even our enemies. The word agape was rarely used in pagan literature, but it is the term most often translated as love in the New Testament, appearing 116 times in the noun form. It is popular for preachers to describe it as a love that acts rather than feels, but it is more than an action that must be chosen. The Pharisees preoccupied themselves with keeping the technical details of the Mosaic law. They were known, according to the historian Josephus, to be accurate expositors in this. Yet in Luke chapter 11 verse 42, Jesus indicts them for paying tithes of mint, rue, and every kind of garden herb, yet ignoring justice and the love of God. None of their religious actions produced legitimate agape. This is because agape also carries the sense of affectionate regard or benevolence towards someone. We find in Luke 16 that the Pharisees were lovers of money and scoffed at Jesus' teaching that one cannot serve God in wealth. They also liked the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Their willful attempts to follow God's law proceeded from a desire for success and comfort rather than a love for God. Their motives, rooted in what Jesus identified as evil hearts, ultimately became their own ruin. In contrast to this, Jesus' actions came from a love for God and others. He set the law in its proper place where it honored God's intentions and served man. When the Pharisees confronted him because his disciples picked grain on the Sabbath, he declared the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. His love did not terminate with the letter of the law. He could see beyond it to the people it governed. When James and John asked to sit on his right and left in glory, Jesus did not say, follow rules. He said, be slaves to all. He exemplified this before his death in the upper room where he dressed as a slave and washed the disciples' feet. No better tribute to Christ's love may be found than in the ancient Carmen Christi hymn from Philippians chapter 2. Paul precedes the hymn with instructions to the church at Philippi to not merely look out for their own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. This preference for other church members is part of what Paul called maintaining the same love. He then promoted Christ's attitude as an example they should follow. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In this supreme act of love the God of creation willingly suffered slander, betrayal, rejection, humiliation, pain, and death for his people, for you, for me. This is how God demonstrated his own love towards us, believers, according to Romans chapter 5 verse 8. Yet this demonstration simply displayed what was already present. What theologians call the golden chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30 teaches that God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified his people. This means before their birth, God already loved them. It means he already loved you if you're in Christ. And is on this basis, Paul claimed that no created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ's agape preceded his sacrifice. Just came to mind too the, the passage in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Some incorrectly teach the reason God loves believers is because they choose him. This conflicts, this conflicts with numerous passages that show a Christian's love for God is first preceded by God's love for them. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. Salvation is not based on human deeds done in righteousness, but on the mercy of God according to the kind intention of his will. This desire to show mercy and kindness to someone else is central to agape. Not only does it provide the basis for salvation and spiritual service, but it is necessary for the formation and maintenance of any healthy society. In a certain sense, love does make the world go round. The bounds of love. Third category. God's covenantal love for both Israel and the church is unconditional, everlasting, and exclusive. He does not love other nations or institutions like he does Israel and the church. For the church, he gave special favor based upon what Christ accomplished in redemption. Christians, in turn, reflect this love to God of God to each other. The new commandment Jesus gave to his disciples to love one another inaugurated a new spiritual community composed of people from different tribes, tongues, and nations, all adopted into God's family. Christ did not say others would know them by miracles, customs, or community involvement, but by their love for one another. This was the perfect bond of unity, coloring their interactions with each other. It meant that while God commanded them to do good to all people, their first priority were to members of the household of faith. One important difference between the church Israel is that the universal church exists on a spiritual level. It does not destroy the temporal associations people belong to related to gender, family, nation, community, citizenship, labor, or voluntary association. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. Augustine, however, explained differences of race or condition or sex is indeed taken away from the unity, uh, taken away by the unity of faith, but it remains embedded in our moral, mortal interactions and in the journey of this life. In other words, someone does not cease to be a married female of Italian heritage when they convert to Christianity, doesn't change them in, in, in those respects. This is important because it orchestrates the way God beautifully arranges love and how it is channeled in natural ways rooted in creation and not just spiritual ways rooted in redemption. In Israel, we see this more clearly. God established a spiritual community within the boundaries of natural relationships. Though everything in their religious system from animal sacrifices to religious celebrations pointed national members towards spiritual redemption, they remained members of ethnic Israel regardless. One only needed to be born a Jew to receive temporal covenant blessings that came through things like law and land. Paul said that to Israel belonged the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. Just as God commanded the church as a spiritual community to prioritize fellow Christians, he also commanded Israel to prioritize their fellow countrymen. For example, Christians and Israelites were both to provide for destitute members of their groups. They were both to seek spiritual mediation instead of court adjudication concerning challenging personal disagreements. They were both to give preference to one another in tangible ways. For Israel, this included laws concerning slavery, worship, and land rights that favored their countrymen over others. In our country, we we actually have a sense of this in our Constitution when it states its intention to promote uh, the welfare of ourselves and our posterity, right? It's, it's, it's a group. It's an identity group right there. Not, not other peoples and, and their posterity, ourselves and our posterity. It is common for modern people to get uncomfortable at this point and start asking whether such laws reflect bigotries and hatred for others. Should Americans or any other country or region set up laws that protect or benefit themselves and not others? Today, these questions surround things like border security and voting rights. The important thing to remember is that God's law, when implemented from a pure heart, is the definition of love. Jesus said that the entire law rested on the commands to love God and neighbor. When Israel walked with God, they took their responsibility to be a light to the nations, so that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth seriously. God told them to treat strangers with the love they had for themselves by doing them no wrong. Yet this equality before the law did not erase the special love they had for each other. This is apparent in the New Testament when Jesus wept over Jerusalem, or when Paul wished he were accursed for the sake of his kinsmen according to the flesh. The natural feelings we share for similar uh, or familiar places, like home, the camaraderie of old friends, and the love of country, inspire us to sacrifice for those with whom we share fellowship. We love the things we are connected to through mutual obligation, proximity, and trust. This is the essence of loving our neighbors as ourselves, and it also extends to our ancestors and descendants as we treasure the blessings passed down to us, which we in turn pass down to our descendants. The English term neighbor comes from two words meaning near and dweller. A neighbor is any person who is near us. Under the influence of the modern concept of love, real people are often sacrificed to abstract notions of equity, diversity, inclusion, and freedom. People dehumanize others who do not fit into their utopian political vision. Everyone loves humanity, just not necessarily the humans they happen to live with who foil their own plans. Loving neighbor is not, however, a love for propositions, principles, or ideas. It is a love for tangible people included in our everyday experiences. The other Greek terms, translated love, channel agape towards different relationships. Uh, And and this is in what Augustine, uh, St. Augustine referred to as the order amoris, or the right ordering of love. So some of these things have been worked out before in our history as Christians. Phileo refers to affection developed through experience, Uh, like friendships. Storge refers to intimate connections, such as kinship. Eros refers to romantic or sexual love. Each of these relationships, when properly exercised, represents the connections humans share as part of God's good design. They even serve to illustrate heavenly realities, such as the brotherly affection and deep devotion Christians have for one another, as well as the mysterious love Christ has for his church. We learn to love our brothers and sisters in Christ by first understanding what it is to love our actual brothers and sisters. Paul instructs Christians to uh, engage in different earthly relationships to walk in love in specific ways. This includes wives respecting husbands, husbands loving wives, children honoring parents, fathers not provoking children, slaves obeying masters, and masters caring for slaves. Jesus himself cared for his mother, submitted to His father preached to and healed the lost sheep of the house of Israel and laid down his life for his friends. John recounts that Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The greatest love that one can have is to lay down his life for his friends. The answer to the question, Who is my neighbor? is actually fairly straightforward. Duty and proximity are linked. Extending out from the center of our most intimate relationships are people we share life with. They come in all shapes and sizes and from many different walks of life. Some are old, some are young. Some are sad, some are fun. It's the only poem I put into the sermon. I thought about editing it and I said, no, I'm going to keep that. They may be from different religions or cultural backgrounds. They may even hate us but we are still connected to them. We share a family, a community, or a country with them. Our obligation to them diminishes as our connectedness decreases, but it is still there. Charles Spurgeon says of the Good Samaritan that when he saw the wounded man on the road to Jericho, he felt that he was in his neighborhood and that therefore he was his neighbor and he was bound to love him. In the same way, we are to love even our personal enemies, whom we cross paths with, which means doing what is best for them, even at our own expense. Love is not ultimately about equality, acceptance, or tolerance, but sacrifice. God is love, and his will for us is to love others. The world is passing away, and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that in times of confusion, moral chaos, when people don't know what true love is, Lord, you've given us a piercing example of it in your son, Jesus Christ. Especially in the love, Lord, that he demonstrated towards us in laying down his life for his friends, whom he calls us. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone in this room, Lord, who, who heard the words quoted from your revelation and was convicted about it, Lord, or was attracted to it, wanting to know deeper what this love is, how to experience it. Father, I pray that you would do a work in their heart, that you would stir it to action, Lord, that you would show them firsthand that love, Lord, that it may lead to salvation today. And for those of us who are saved, who have trusted in you for our redemption, Father, I pray that we would walk out of here with a sense of your love, that we would, because of that, love others in turn. In Jesus' name, amen.